Hi there, and welcome back to another edition of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. I'm the executive producer, Colin Morgan, and today on the show, John is joined by Kelby Zordrager, who sold his service business for, get this, just over four times revenue. But before we get there, during today's episode, Kelby referenced how a Dr. Seuss book was actually the bedrock for training his sales team. So I will link to that book over in the show notes section, which can be found at builttosell.com. And as you're listening to today's podcast, make sure to listen for why Kelby was so intent on making every new hire read this book. Quickly, before we jump into the episode, if you're not subscribed to the podcast, be sure you hit that subscribe button. We've learned that about 40% of you who listen to Built to Sell Radio aren't subscribed, and a simple click can truly help our show tremendously. So if you want to help our show grow, be sure to hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to your podcast. Okay, so now let me tell you a little bit more about today's guest, Kelby, who started a company called Develop Intelligence, which is an outsourced training provider helping programmers develop new skills and adapt to ever-changing technologies. Now, during today's episode, I want you to look out for how Kelby replaced himself as the rainmaker of his business, how he sold to Fortune 500 companies and the strategy he used to get in front of the right people, how he established trust with a team of independent contractors, how he developed a high-performing sales team using a truly unconventional tactic, and how to utilize your M&A attorney to get more money for your business. Here to share with John the full story of how he sold Develop Intelligence is Kelby Zordrager. Enjoy. Kelby Zordrager, welcome to Build to Sell Radio. Thanks. Thanks for having me, John. Develop Intelligence. Describe this business for someone who doesn't know what you guys did. Yeah, so this this was a this was always a challenge for me running the business for 18 years is coming up with a 30 second pitch on what we did. Um, but I'll try to I'll try to make it simple. So large corporations that had thousands of programmers on staff typically had uh, the need to retrain those programmers when a new technology came to market, and so they either had a choice of building an internal technical training team to do all the training themselves. Or outsource it, and most of the most of the companies today outsource that function. And Develop Intelligence was basically an outsource training provider for those for those organizations. So that. So I'm going to pick a company, I'm going to pick a company out of out of the air. I am Ford Motor Company, and I've got a group of programmers who uh, are part of my internal team who develop uh, solutions software. And when PHP does an update or launches a new version of its latest software, if our company uses PHP, if Ford uses PHP, I might use your training to get up to date on the latest and greatest version of it. Am yep. I getting that right? Yep. Yeah. So like, yeah, that's great. It's a good example. In the, in the context of Ford, like maybe a better example would be, you know, they have programmers that knew how to program in COBOL or C++. And then they wanted to create, you know, the sync system in their car where you could stream video and whatever. And that's a completely different programming language. 
So we would retrain them from what they used to know to the more modern. Why wouldn't Cobalt or the publishers of this software offer training? So it's a, it's a good question. What what happens is that, well, I'll give you the macro. The, the technical training landscape is super fragmented. So like somebody like a Ford Motor Company, you know, they probably are using a hundred, if not a thousand different technologies to make that business operate. And so their, their choices as a business are to either go directly to the COBOL vendor of choice, get training from them. And then if they're using PHP, the PHP training vendor of choice and get it from them and all the way down through the thousand different technology vendors. So they, or they could go to somebody like my firm that consolidates all of those different offerings under one umbrella, single, single throat to choke type of scenario. Excellent. And so the delivery of the training, how did it get done? Was it in classroom virtual? What was the model? Yeah. So we, um, so we started off, we started off doing only instructor led training in the classroom. And then as, as odd as it sounds in 2008, we started to do remote delivery we now would call it virtual, but remote delivery. And that basically stayed about 10% to 15% of our business up until the pandemic. Majority of, majority of the instruction was still in the classroom. And then when the pandemic hit, 100% of our instruction was remote, live virtual. You had like a 12-year head start on the rest of us. We had a 12. We did. We did. It was funny because it was funny because when the pandemic hit, we, we picked up a new client and they're like, have you guys ever done remote learning? And I was like, well, funny you should say that. We used to do it all the way back in 2008. That's funny. So, yeah. So what was the, the, the business model having, I mean, these trainers, were they on staff or contract? Were you, how did that work? So we, um, we used what I would call a very highly leveraged workforce. Um, and the way that the way that our the way that the technical training industry kind of works is not that dissimilar from like a from like the Uber Uber world or the DoorDash world. There are thousands, hundred thousand independent contract instructors throughout the world. Um, they typically are not really good at sales and marketing. They're really good at teaching or they're really good at technology um, and they need somebody to help them find, find clients. So we, as a business, we really functioned as kind of a recruiting, vetting, sourcing business that did all the general contracting and instructor management. So we had very long way to say we had about 300 contract instructors that ran through our vetting process that we would pull from to deliver a program. And how did the cash flow work? So Ford hires you to run the new Cobalt version 16.3 yep. training program. And, and yep. I'm assuming you issue them an invoice and they sit on it for 90 days and pay it 120 days in. Yet you've got yep. these contractors who probably need to be paid sooner. So how did the money move? Who got the money first? Is it negative cash flow, positive cash flow? Yeah, so we one of the things that we did different 
Um, and I think one of the things that made us a little bit unique on the on the supply side, you know, in dealing with our independent contractors, is that we would we would pay our contractors either on completion of the program or on net net fifteen terms. So my so when I was building the business, um, my goal was to build up enough cash reserve so that we could pay our contractors as quickly as possible. And so we basically functioned as the float, right? The balance sheet functioned as a float where we had enough cash to pay the contractors while we were waiting for Ford to pay us, you know, 90, 120, 20 days later. Got it. And where did the float come from? Like, how did you finance the business? Uh, old school, old school, just put money in the bank as you're making money. Never, I was not, when I was growing the business because it was a services business, I was not a huge fan of taking on debt. We didn't have a line of credit. So we just, we just basically built up over time. We built up, um, a balance sheet that had, it had about 12 months of pure operating expenses on it. And then we had about 90 days of an additional 90 days of expenses to pay contractors. So we had, I mean, maybe, maybe looking back, it was a bad idea, but uh, for me, I just wanted to have enough cash on the sidelines and uh, that's what we did. did it took, it took, oh, good. sorry, this, I was gonna say the side effect, the side effect is that I think if, if I hadn't been so cash uh, aware, like trying to build up that that balance sheet, we probably I probably could have grown the business faster. But I also really wanted to make sure that we could pay our contractors as quickly as we possibly could. So it's a you know got to make that decision along the way. And I assume that was part of the reason they wanted to work for you as opposed to try to pitch their words directly to Ford or, you know, work with some other. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, the, the things that I, I mean, I, I could be totally wrong because I was the business owner, but the, the reasons that I think those independents worked for us versus one of the hundred other companies out there were one, we, we paid them quickly. Two, we generally paid them a premium rate over our competitors, which was good. And then the third is the, the, the type of engagement that we gave them was generally head and shoulders above the competition. So if you, you know, if you not, not to, not to name names, but if you were to take the top 20 tech companies in the world, probably 90% of them were our clients. Hmm. So if you're, if you're an independent, you know, instructor that lives in Missouri, and wants the exposure or the the credential to say, hey, I taught at XYZ, very large tech company. We were the catalyst for that. Take me back to the- So it was kind of those three things. Yeah. Take me back to the earliest days of the business's inception. Um, how did you get off the ground? I mean, did you raise any money to start the business? Was there any sort of- Didn't- uh, you, you just used your own funding? Didn't raise any money. Didn't raise any money, uh, so that so that before the before the business even started, I I worked at Sun Microsystems and I helped them build their used to be called Sun Education, 
Um, and we had a we had a difference of opinion on how technical education should work. So I was I was of the opinion that most adults, especially in technology, like to learn by doing first and sitting in the classroom second. And they were pretty let's sit in the classroom first and do second. So I had some ideas of how I wanted to run a training business when I worked for Sun. Um, and then when I started the business, uh, we I had I was working for a startup. The startup failed. Couldn't find a job in Boulder that I wanted to do. My wife was like, "You've always told every single boss in your life how to run their business, so why don't you just start your own business?" <laughs> so. So I did. Not, I didn't really know what I was signing up for, but I did. And then uh, basically the first three years of the business, we did have some employees and contractors, but I, you know, I paid myself like $22,000 a year for the first three years of the business. My, uh, my in-laws gave us a, you know, annual kind of Christmas check, not, not huge, 10, 20 grand. My grandmother one time gave me a 20 grand check and that's it. I mean, that's how we got the business off the ground. It, I was my, sorry, it's funny. My, 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 my middle kid, his name is Owen. He's 20. Uh, he and my wife and I were talking about how, when he was in, in elementary school and we didn't really have enough money to pay for him to go to karate. And so my wife was like reminiscing about how much of a sacrifice it was for us to send him <laughs> to karate, you know, to enjoy bootstrapping, I guess. How has, your relationship with Owen changed over the years uh, as a result of this exit? Um, you know, the, he, uh, well, I, the best way I could say it is that now he wants to study entrepreneurship in college. I don't know what that exactly means, but, <laughs> but, you know, it's like, I think he's, I think he's seen, uh, I think he's seen success and being an entrepreneur and that's intrigued him. And, and, uh, you know, I think that's the path that he wants to go down. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. So let's go back to the business. What is precluding Ford? I'm just keep bringing up Ford as this fictitious client, yep, but that's, that's easy. You know, it, it's a big, company. not, not that, not that they were a client, okay. but they might've been a client. Perfect. But people kind of yep. get who they are and what they, what they do. Yep. So yep. what does, what precludes Ford going around your back and saying, Hey, Kelby, really appreciate you putting us in touch with Bob, the trainer, but we're going to do our own deal with Bob. Cause he's great. We're going to, we're going to hire him directly. Uh, that's a good question. We've had in the, in the 18 years I ran the business, there was only one fortune 100 company that did that to me and they are they're very well known for credit card processing uh and it kind of pissed me off but you know you can't can't really do much about it so that's my that's my not the answer to your question john the the primary reason the primary reason is that in order for ford to go use one of our contractors directly they would that contractor would need to have a certain level of insurance premiums and, you know, you know, insurance, general liability insurance. Mm. Um, if that contractor was going to do services in different States, they'd have to deal with those different tax liabilities. So that's the individual would have to be prepared to work for, for, for four directly is one. And then two, 
Ford would Ford would have had to double or triple their internal training department to manage all those independent contractors. So the cost the cost to them to actually hire the independent would not be the lower rate because they'd have they'd have additional overhead. So that's there's not a lot of motivation. I mean, there's not a lot of financial motivation for them to do that. Got it. Got it. You mentioned like 90% of the big tech companies that we all know and use and certainly would be aware of were customers. What's the yep. secret to selling to a Fortune 500 giant? Um, I think there's a couple of things. One is straight up grit, persistence, not taking no for an answer would be the first thing. In fact, um, if you were, we had, I had this little thing that if I hired you as a salesperson, you had to, you had to read the green eggs and ham book as part of your onboarding and the whole, it's not, it's not really a sales book, but it is a sales book. But the whole point of that thing is that you're going to have to go through a shit ton of no's and a thousand different objections, but you have to keep asking and then eventually, you know, eventually you'll find something. So that's. So that's one, just grit, perseverance, whatever you want to call it. Um, the second, the second is a willingness to listen. And what I mean by that is, you know, in our business, we would ask questions first before trying to share, this is what we do. We would ask, you know, what are you doing with your training? How does it working in the past? Is it, is it helpful? Do you see the outcomes? Like, so we would try to ask a lot of questions to just understand truly what the problem was. So listening, I would say, is the second. And then the third is you need some anchor client that is, you know, in the same network. It's like, you know, if you're trying to sell to Ford and all of the customers that you have are three-person small businesses, Ford's not going to look at you as a realistic vendor. So you, you have to you have to figure out how to get get one flagship that you can leverage. Makes sense. Makes sense. I love the green eggs and ham uh, recommendation. I might inherit that one for us. <laughs> Tell me as you look back, and I know it, you know, it's it's relatively fresh the sale, but as you as you look back over those 18 years that you ran the company, was there a key decision that in retrospect you now see as a bit of an inflection point, something that you did across those 18 years that you think, you know what, that was a really good decision or a really bad decision. I mean, I've got, everybody's got good and bad decisions, right? <laughs> sure. Um, uh, so for, for us, the first five, six, seven years of the business, we were, we were wholesaling, bad word, but we were selling our services to other training companies. And it was great because the business was growing and I was able to start building a team and I was able to start building some cash reserves. But it was also really bad because uh, the net margin that the business was making was super, super thin. And so... 
in 2010, 2011, something, 2012, somewhere in there, I was like, you know what? This is stupid. Me and my company are doing all of the work to have XYZ training company be able to sell their services to Ford. And they're making a 60 to 70% gross margin. And I'm making a 15% gross margin. I got to stop this. So basically on a Friday afternoon, I sent all of the resellers that we were working with an email and said, we're, we're done. As of March 1st, we're no longer going to be doing any work with you. And, uh, hired somebody to do some cold calling in the meantime. And that was it. That was the big inflection point. It's basically, you know, they say, don't, don't cut off the hand that feeds you. But I basically cut off the hand that fed me because it wasn't producing a business that I, that I wanted. Why were the margins so low going through resellers? Um, because a reseller, a general reseller would view, view my business as Kelby, a trainer versus Kelby, a business that has a bunch of trainers and project managers. So they wanted to pay me a daily rate is how we talk about it in the industry. They wanted to pay me a daily rate as if I was an instructor. So that's, so that's why, and which meant, which just, which just meant I had to push when, if I used an outsourced instructor, I had to push their daily rate down. Um, that's, that's why, but I, I mean, I, I shouldn't say, I shouldn't say that's the primary reason why John, the other, the other reason is that on top of the training reseller is probably another reseller. So. You know, generally, my, the way that my industry works is that Ford Motor Company would hire uh, somebody like an Accenture or somebody like a Global Knowledge to deliver their training. Accenture would have relationships with smaller training companies. Those smaller ship, smaller training companies would have relationships with smaller training companies who would then have relationships with instructors. So there's four or five levels of intermediaries between, and we. When I first started the business, we were the low, the low man on that rung. What was the reaction to the resellers to that email? Uh, I had one guy call me, started yelling at me, telling me I didn't know how what I was doing or how to run a training business. Uh, the rest of them were like, "Totally understand, no, no big deal." What I was your reaction? What was your reaction to the guy who told you you didn't know? You don't strike me as the kind of guy that would suffer fools lightly. Just, just thought. <laughs> I was like, I was like, I was like, I was like, bro. I understand this upsets your business and your personal cash flow, but you're you're screwing me in my business. So tough. This is what we're doing. And uh, the ironic the ironic thing is that when I sold when I sold the business. Uh, a mutual, a, a friend of mine who, who knows this guy really well, called him and was super pissed at, super pissed that I sold the business for what I sold. So, you know, that's how it works out, I guess. Yeah, it sure does. You mentioned that the subs were, or the, these sort of wholesalers were thinking of you as Kelby, the day rate. And 
And I'd be curious to know, I mean, you scaled well, well, much larger than just you doing training, obviously. Yep. I'd be curious to know what other tactics you employed to make the business less dependent on you as the entrepreneur. Like, did you, did you, did you, I mean, do anything proactive or thoughtfully to make the business yep. less dependent on you? Yeah. So what, it's a, it's a good question. One, one of the first, one of the things that I did was maybe foolish and, and I don't know, but um, when I started the business, my goal was to never have a business built on my personal name. So most people, when they start a business, they'll call their friends or they'll call the family members who are potential clients or ask for introduction to those companies. I didn't do that. I tried to do it all on my, on my own. And my reasoning was that I didn't want people to feel like it was just Kelby's business. So that, that was my mindset going in. And then to answer your question, um, I, I quickly learned that my best value in the business was not teaching, was not doing operations, was not doing the, the accounting. My best value in the business was kind of setting the vision of where we were going. But after that was talking to customers. And so my over the over the years, I really focused on trying to backfill the operations side of the business. Hired a, an operations leader pretty quickly, who managed the instructors and the logistics. I had four failed attempts to hire a sales leader. Um, just you know, it's hard for me. It was hard to find a sales leader that could come in understand you know, A, that we're a bootstrap company and B, what my long-term vision was. Um, so I had a lot of failed attempts there. And then, and then the last thing I would say is that um, four years prior to selling the business, we started implementing EOS to help kind of with the structure and the metrics and the accountability. And that fundamentally changed fundamentally changed the leadership team beneath me and uh, required them to mature and required the business to mature. So those are some of the things that I did. Fantastic. Fantastic. And we'll put some, uh, some links to EOS for folks who don't know that organization in the show notes. Uh, did you ever figure out how to hire a sales leader? Um, I did, you know, the last, uh, the year going into the sale of the business, I did hire a sales leader. Um, and he was the right sales leader to have in place going into a sale of the business. Um, but I, you know, I, I don't think I, I don't think I actually found the right, truly the right sales leader that would have allowed us to go from 12 million to 30 million in revenue. Mm-hmm. If that makes Why sense. was he the right sales leader to go into the sale of the business? Because um, he had enough he had enough pedigree and enough experience in the industry that it added some legitimacy to the business. If that makes sense, you know he had worked yeah. he had worked for some larger training companies, um, understood the global sales world and the that type of structure. So it just added it added 
it added it added professionalism. Makes sense. This is one of the hardest things for entrepreneurs to do, especially entrepreneurs who are uh, sort of the, the front person for their company, the, the 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 main person that talks to customers. If I had a dollar for every time I hear somebody say I tried but failed to hire someone to replace me as the sales guy or gal. Yep. Uh, it's a very common problem. What did you learn in the process of trying to replace yourself four times? Like what does not work definitively that you can, you can help other people avoid? So I would never, um, I'll just put it in my, in my things, in my experience. One, one of the sales leaders that I hired came from a very large tech company was used to managing two, three, 400 sales people, you know, he managed sales leaders who managed sales leaders that managed sales people and awesome pedigree, awesome human got along. Great. We were a $4 million business at the time. So, you know, my, my first lesson was <laughs> don't, don't overhire, I guess, you know, don't get caught up in the, somebody's resume or the, Pedigree. So that was one mistake that I made. Um, the second, I think the second thing that I learned was from a sales perspective, really getting somebody that could, I could communicate with and, uh, how do I say it properly? You know, a, a good salesperson is going to push back on you regardless, right? That's their job. They're going to try to convince you to buy from them. And so you need that from your sales leader, but you also don't need it to be overbearing. And so when one of the sales leaders I hired was super overbearing, like I'm going to sell you on everything, which is not great when you're trying to build an executive team. So uh, I don't know. That was, that was a learning lesson. So that, yeah, that was a learning lesson. Interesting. I saw a Harvard Business Review article that goes back to the, I think it goes back to the 80s, a long time ago. They did a big study on what makes successful salespeople. I think it was enterprise salespeople specifically. And it was, to your point, it was the combination of high degrees of competitiveness, like ego drive, yep. combined with empathy, yep. good listening skills, the ability to put yourself in the shoes of the customer. Those two things are almost never in the same person. Right. Usually the strong ego drive overwhelms the empathy or vice versa. But when you find someone with the combination, it's it's magic in a bottle. Yep. It sounds like that's similar in, in to your experience. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. You know, if I could do it if I could do it again though, John, the thing that I would you know, you can never go back in time, but the thing that I would do different if I if I could do it again, um, is is that I would have kept new business development, new customer acquisition underneath me, even even to the point of exiting the business and hired a sales leader that was really good at customer retention. Um, because I think my what I learned is that my unique skill was talking to a random person like like you and in a very short period of time, asking you the right questions to understand what your business problem was to say, this is how we can help. And so I think if I was just so hell bent on taking the sales function off of my plate so that I had a stable company to get to the, I want to have the four hour work week. 
that I couldn't, I couldn't see it at the time. Really helpful for sure. And even just the distinction, I think, between new business hunting versus gathering farming is a great distinction yep. for folks to think about and, 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 and super helpful. Where, where are you in 2020 revenue, like 2020, 2021? Like how, where are you, where's your top line at at this point in the game? Yeah. So we, um, so my, my goal when I was growing the business was to grow, was to grow 25 to 35% year over year annually and maintain between a 15 and 20% net margin annually. So I wanted to grow, I wanted to grow the business at the pace of a tech company, software company without killing cash. So we sold, we, the, I sold the business in October of 2020 and that fiscal year, we did about 12.1 million in revenue. The previous year we were just around 2019, we were just around 10, 10 ish million. And then, yeah, sorry. And, And then post, post sale, um, under under plural site in 2021 we grew the revenue from 12 million to 17 million so we grew like 35 40% in a in a services business without actually adding too many too many staff so we grew phenomenally wow. that's amazing 2019 you're roughly 10 million about 2 million on the bottom line ish yep ebit yeah yep and so at that point, had you started to think about what it might be worth? So I, you know, um, there was a there was a there was a boot camp company in San Francisco called Hack Reactor that sold in 2018, and I think they were they were a, a competitor, and I think that they had were doing something like six, seven, eight million in revenue and they sold for 20 million. And when I, when I started my business and as I was growing my business, everybody told me, you're never going to be able to sell a training business. You're never going to get enough money for your training business to sell it. So 2018, 2019, whenever that transaction occurred, I was like, that's legitimate. That's like, that's legitimate money. Uh, well, it's three X so revenue. It's three X revenue. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's a big deal. So, yeah. so I was like that when I saw that, I was like, huh, maybe I should, maybe I should actually see if my business is, you know, worth, worth selling. So that was kind of the catalyst for me to explore it. And so what'd you do next? Um, I had a, I had an investment banker actually reach out to me and said, Hey, ironically said, Hey, we just did this hack reactor deal. Like I had found the hack reactor, deal, you know, whatever, just randomly investment makers like, Hey, we did this hack reactor deal. Uh, we do a lot of stuff. The group, the group is called Titan partners. They're out of, they're out of the East coast. And, uh, and they're like, we do a lot of transactions in your space. I'm going to be in Denver because the, the company that acquired hack reactor was headquartered in Denver. And he's like, this guy, Rich is like, Hey, I'm going to be in Denver you mind, would you be up for grabbing a coffee? I'm like, sure. And I was thinking at the time, I was thinking, I'm just going to pick the dude's brain, right? Like, I'm just going to ask him sure. competitive intelligence. How did you sell it? What was going on? Was it, you know, 
And uh, he was gracious enough to share a lot of that stuff. But then, you know, he asked me some questions, you know, we talked about business and I, and I shared what my EBITDA was. And he was like, he's like, I think, I think we can get you eight to 10 times EBITDA on your business. And I was like, sweet, that's awesome. And so that was the, that was the beginning. I think, actually, I think when we first, when he and I first started talking, we were seven ish million, seven and a half million. You know, twenty percent, twenty percent, five on the bottom line. Yep, yep. So you're thinking, okay, like there's there's a runway here to maybe as much as fifteen million bucks. Yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, yep. Okay, and 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 you're like, yes, Rich. What do we do next? Well, because because you know, at that point in time, I was at that point in time, I was like fourteen years into running the business, right? And yep. I you know I shared the first three years where my wife and I were making no money. And so it's like, well, shit, if I can get 15 million, why I, that's an, that's enough to go take some time off and do something else. hundred <laughs> percent. Like the rest of your life. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So Wait, are you pulling money out of the business at this point? You mentioned oh, yeah. you always wanted to keep a year, but yeah. are you like, are you starting to like pull out some of this profit or are you pulling it, pushing yeah. it all back into the company? Yeah. I mean, I, um, I, I didn't, I never really paid myself like a great, salary you know i paid myself whatever average 150 grand type of salary i was in i was in vistage for a long time and and in my vistage group all the ceos that i was friends with all paid themselves about that so i was like okay i guess that's going right and then i would just take a distribution at the end of the year you know like if our family wanted to go on a nice vacation i would take a distribution or you know when i my oldest started college. So I took a distribution to start paying for college. So it was, I was taking some cash out of the business, but most of it stayed in the business. Got it. Got it. So this is 15 million is life-changing money at this point. Yeah. Like, I mean, you figure I had a, at that point, figure I had a plus a $2 million, two and a half million dollar balance sheet. So you're really, you know, you're really 17, $18 million when the transaction happens. So yeah, life-changing. Yeah. 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 Okay. So where does it go from there? So we, uh, you know, as, as you know, we work on the SIM and pull together the deck and go to market. Um, we went to market, we went to market and that probably took us six months, right. To get the deck and all that stuff dialed in and them to run the process before we got any indications back. And we got the indications back and the money was, you know, kind of in that 15 to $20 million range, which was great. More than you expected. More than I expected, but the business had grown. So the business had, we had a, had a phenomenal year. So I was like, wait, time out. <laughs> we, we, you know, we got to value the business on the new number, not the number that we used when we started this process. So we so went. What was the new number? Uh, well, I, I think we had gotten, I think we had gotten to about eight and a half million in revenue. So we were, we should have been, we, the, the, the offers should have been like 20 to 25 range based on where mm -hmm. the revenue of the, the EBITDA of the business was. Um, so I was like, Hey, we gotta, we gotta, we can't just, we can't do this. Like we have to go back. And at that time we went back to all the, potential acquirers and they're like, nope, that's too rich. It's it's just a training company. I'm like, fine. 
So we decided, uh, we decided, I decided to take the business off the market for a year. Um, I had some, I had some line of sight into, into, into our pipeline and I knew that the following year was going to be an even better year. So we took the business off the market, told Rich, let's revisit it in a year because, you know, if I can grow the business another 15, 20% and maintain my EBITDA, the value of the business just went up significantly. So we did that. What'd your wife say? What'd my wife say? My wife, you know, uh, that's the, that's a good question. My wife for the longest, my wife grew up in a family of entrepreneurs and, uh, she, you know, she was the one that was like, start, start your own business. She was also, yeah. she also was like, why Kelby, why would you ever want to sell your business? You know, her, her dad ran his business until he was 65 and then sold it. She's like, why would you do this? So she was against it at first. She was against it. Um, probably all the way up until our, the offer that we accepted. Cause she was like, we're, you we're doing well. You're, you've got 30 employees that you're impacting their lives. You're, you know, we've seen people get married, have babies. So she wasn't, she wasn't totally for it. And what did you say in response? I was like, it's not about the people, baby. <laughs> it's, it's about the money. <laughs> Which marriage, marriage, marriage advice, never do that. But, uh, we were, you know, we were both right somewhere in the middle. We were both right on that. Did you have an operational role in the company? Nope. Not at all. No, 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 we were, we were not a, we were, we were not really a family, family business in that sense. You know, I know, in fact, sorry, long winded, but in fact, when I started the business, I asked, my wife, her name is Beth. I asked her if she would help me with some things around the office. And she was like, no way in hell am I doing that. Smart lady. Smart lady. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So let me, let me try to sort of get myself up to speed here. So the hack reactor comes in at, at three times revenue. Rich says, we think you can get maybe maybe as much as eight, even 10 times EBITDA. You're like, that sounds great. At the time it was 15, business grows. Now you're cresting, kind of getting closer to a couple million in EBITDA probably. Yep. And now you're thinking, well, wait, hold on a second. If the 10 is the number, then you're probably closer to 20, maybe even more. You got this great pipeline. Yep. And you, and you, blew, and you say, you know what? I'm going to just grow this thing for another year. Yep. Yep. Then what? We- I grew the, we grew the business for another year and landed the, the largest retailer in America as a client, which added million added another flat major flagship customer to our portfolio, but added another million in top line revenue, didn't erode EBITDA at all. Uh, so just adding that customer and the revenue increased the value of my business significantly. So I grew the business. I think we were, I think we were at 10 million at that point. Um, and Rich reached back out to me and said, Hey, one of the previous acquirers is still really interested in your business. Are you open to have a conversation with them? And I said, sure. You know, I'm happy to have a conversation. And they, um, so we traded numbers and, you know, refresh all the sim type of stuff and gave them my projections and they, 
they said, you know, we, we still really want to buy your business, but and we're willing to pay, I think, like $28 million for it at that point in time, a year later. And they wanted they wanted a percentage of the transaction to be rolled into their their PE firm. So they want a percentage of the transaction rolled into their fund. And then they wanted me to run the business for three years underneath their umbrella. And I was like, 28 million seems like a great number, but I don't want to work for you for three years and report to a CEO and take 10% or 20% of the deal and roll it into your fund. So turned down, <laughs> turned down the offer. Um, the second time I turned down the offer from, from that group, but, uh, and then, and then we were having a great year. So I was like, screw it. I'm just going to keep running the business. It's kicking off great cash. The team's really stable. I have the new sales leader in place. I have an awesome VP of operations in place. You know, I've got a, a great VP of product in place. I'm like, I'm just going to keep running the business. And then uh, Pluralsight randomly reached out to me and said, hey, we're thinking about adding an instructor-led training component to our business. Do you know anybody who's looking to sell? Them obviously knowing that I was an instructor-led training company. <laughs> so, so, uh, so this guy, Adam, who, who worked at Pearl at the time, he's, he, he's talking to me. He's like, I'm like, yeah, I mean, I know a training company, but I don't know anybody that's at our scale, Adam, that you guys could acquire. And he's like, well, what about this company? I'm like, yeah, they only do one thing. He's like, what about that company? I'm like, yeah, they suck. And so, you know, we're just friendly, friendly, like not even just banter. I'm not even trying to sell them on my business. I'm yeah. just, you know, trying to help them. And then, and then we get to the end of the conversation. And I was like, Hey, you know, Adam, we, we just ran a process. I took the business off the market. You know, if you guys are serious, I'll introduce you to rich at Titan partners and you guys can have a conversation. And so that's, that's kind of where the, that's kind of where the deal started between, between me and, and portal site. And what's your understanding of what Adam was doing during that conversation in retrospect? Um, I mean, honestly, I think we were just having a friendly, well, two things. One is I think he was trying to gauge interest in whether or not we would, we would be willing to be acquired. We were, we were a little bit of a partner of theirs for a couple of years. And, uh, so we had some friendly relations with each other, so to speak. So I think that was part of it. And then the other part of it is that I think he was, we were just truly having a friendly, you know, business of the training industry conversation. I should have asked earlier, and I want to go back. You, you There's a $28 million off on the table from a private equity group that wanted you to roll 10 or 15% of your value into their roll-up. The, you know, yep, their the, roll-up. The entity they set up and work for them for three years. What was it about that? that that did not appeal to you um i i think it was really the fact that i had gone so long on my own without other people's money without a board of directors and then having to the mindset of then being having to go work 
for somebody not being the CEO, but reporting to a CEO, still being held accountable to grow the business 25 to 30% year over year. It just, it felt, it didn't feel freeing. It felt like overwhelming going to prison. I mean, that's the best, that's the best <laughs> way I can, can answer it. Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't necessarily, it wasn't necessarily like I, you know, everybody on that team was great, you know, where they were trying to go, totally understood it, bought into it. But it was at the end of the day, it was just kind of that internal core feeling where I was like, I, I don't think I can sign up for three years to do this. But couldn't you have just bailed and said, you know, keep my 10 points of equity. I'm not, I'm not into this and, and kept 20 million I, plus dollars in your jeans. I could have, but that's, that's not who I am. So let's go back to plural site and Adam. So you sent him off to rich at Titan partners. What happens next? Uh, man, that was like a blur, honestly, you know, they, Rich and Adam have the conversation, trade the sim, blah, 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 blah. Have lots of conversations. I'm having lots of conversations with Pluralsight at that point in time. Nobody in my business knows that I'm having conversations with Pluralsight at that time. My wife knows, obviously. Uh, and we get to a place where they're like, yeah, we're, we're super interested. We'd like to, we'd like to buy your business. And you have to remember, like, you have to remember, I just turned down $28 million, right? And I was like, I had gotten to the place where I was like, I'm just going to run the business for the next five, 10 years. It's kicking off two to $3 million a year. It's fantastic. And so they said, hey, we're really interested. Uh, we want to buy the business for like roughly $30, $30 million. And it had it had some like, I would call, I would say it had some hair on the deal. Not really, but it, it just wasn't as clean as I wanted it to be. And we had just released a new service offering that we called developer Academy, which as a side note is the fastest line of fastest growing line of business in plural site today is this thing called developer Academy that we had rolled out prior, prior to sale. So when they offered me the $30 million, I was like, I'm just not sure. You know, there's a couple of things about it, about the deal that I didn't like. And so I was like, I think I'm going to keep running the business for a few years. You mentioned some hair on the deal. Can you be more specific? What, what was it that you didn't like about it? It was like, you know, uh, hold back retention bonuses, incentive bonus for me to stay there. You know, that, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So they wanted you to stay on and run the business for a while. Yep. Yep. Which was, I mean, which was, okay, which, oh, was uh, which was okay, but it was, it wasn't, the, the lift wasn't significant enough from the PE firm's offer for me to really yeah. say, um, I'm in. I'm just imagining Rich at this point. He's like, I came to you and said, I thought I could get you 15 million. You're like, yeah, no problem. <laughs> now here we are at 30. And you're like, well, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> He's I, probably man, like, what I, is this guy drinking? <laughs> I swear, I swear, if, if Rich did, if Rich was not didn't drink alcohol prior to working with me, he was probably an alcoholic by the time he got done working with me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. It changed my mind a lot. Not not atypical, not atypical, but it did change my mind changed my mind quite a bit. Yeah. Okay. So that's fine. So we're at 30 with a little bit of hair. 
No. Then no. Go on vacation. Uh, I was like, I'm so freaking exhausted from dealing with this decision. Go on vacation. On vacation in Michigan, hanging out with my wife and her family and on the lake. And I had this epiphany. I was like, Kelby, you, you started a business with the intent to sell it. Somebody just offered you $30 million <laughs> to buy your business <laughs> and you turned it down. And I was, and so I'm you know, having this internal conversation with myself. Right. And then I'm like, are you really going to turn down risk $30 million on this leadership team that you put in place over the last year? And so, and so I was like, hell yeah. So having this conversation, having this conversation, uh, well, what can you do? You know, you turn, you turn on the deal, whatever. Get, I get back from vacation, uh, get a, get a call or an email from Rich that says, Hey, you know, I talked to Pluralsight while you were on vacation. Uh, they have a, they have a different deal structure. They've been thinking about, would you be willing to talk to them? And I was like, well, sure. <laughs> let's, let's talk to them. You know, the one voice is like, you just turned 30, down $30 million. And the other voice is like, just keep running the business. So got back and uh, they off, got back, talked to Adam, listened to what he said. And they came back and offered me $40 million for the business. So basically 25% lift. And uh, a couple million dollars of that we had to we had to give back to them. So for incentive to keep the leadership team and some key people in place for a year. And so the 25% increase was awesome. And then they added to it uh, an incentive bonus for me. Um, and that was, you know, Kelby, you think you can grow this business to 17, 20 million, between 17 and $20 million under our umbrella. If you do it, we're going to pay you a great bonus. And so the potential upside for me in 12, 12 to 18 months of working for them was another 25% on top of the 40. So I was like, that's a crazy freaking deal on, on, on $12 million of revenue. Yeah. <laughs> so 12 million revenue, it's, it's better than, uh, the guys at the hack, uh, hack, the hack it's yeah. Way better. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, 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 it's way, way better. Yeah. I mean, all in, it's more than four times revenue, right? Yep. And and even the downstroke cash is way more than three times, almost four times revenue. Yep. Yep. Unbelievable. Yep. So I guess they were wrong that you you couldn't sell a training business. They were wrong. Yeah. Yep. That's right. How's that feel? I mean, it feels great. Feels great. It's always it's always fun when you can say to your your disbelievers. I told you you were wrong. <laughs> yeah, no, it's great. It's great. And my wife and my wife changed her opinion too. By the way, she was like, "Yeah, I, I think we can sell the business for forty million dollars." 
I'm seeing a recurring theme I'd love to just dig into a little bit. You left Sun Microsystems because you wanted to prove your boss wrong. Yep. There were things that they were doing that were wrong. Yep. Then you kind of told the reseller that just watch me. And now you're telling, there seems to be a recurring theme about proving other people wrong. Have you ever unpacked that in your own mind? Is that, am I, am I, am I uh, picking up on something that's there? I mean, I, I didn't, I didn't realize we were going to have a therapy session, but yeah, that is, I, I love it when somebody tells me you can't do that. It's like, it's the, <laughs> it's the best motivator. I mean, obviously not breaking the law, but like, yeah. you know, when they, when they don't believe in your capabilities, I, I love that. I love the challenge. Yeah. Have you ever thought about where that comes from? I, uh, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I've got, I've got two siblings and I'm the, I'm the only one that's entrepreneur. Uh, I don't, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's cause I was picked on all the time growing up. You know, I have, <laughs> I've, I have no idea the, were you? Oh yeah, totally. Totally. For what? Uh, well, I was the I was the odd looking non-athletic kid. You know, taught myself how to program when I was in sixth grade. Had these big old, you know, tortoise shell glasses, looked like I was right out of the Christmas story, Peter's Peter Billingsley. Couldn't couldn't freaking dribble a basketball for crap. Like I was not 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 really that bad, but you know, I was just a I was I was, I was, yeah. And I wasn't, I honestly was not that really that smart. I was like, school was always hard for me. Graduated with college, graduated from college with like a two eight. <laughs> so, you know, whatever, such is life. How have you tried to instill that grit in your kids? I, you know, I, that is, uh, yeah. My, my oldest, my, my youngest is 17. My oldest is 22. And then my son, Owen, we talked about is 20. And, uh, that's, that is honestly, John, that is the one thing, truly the one thing I wish I could have changed over the 18 years of running my business. And I'm sure I'm not the only guy that's ever said this, but the amount of sacrifice that your family has to make for you to be successful I, I'm not sure I did a good job trying to teach my kids the level of grit and perseverance that I have. So now I just, you know, try to coach them and uh, hope and hope and pray that they learned through observation and learn through. We talked about We talked about my business a lot at the dinner table. We prayed for my business to grow a lot around the dinner table. So I just hope that they learned through observation you know, kind of what it takes, but I don't know. Well, ask me in 20 years. We'll find out. I'll have you back. I'll have you back. Yeah. It's the ultimate paradox, right? Because as parents, we, you know, we men, you know, you're so motivated to, to try to achieve financial success for your family. And then the very things that, that made you successful are, you give so much to your kids. And I mean, I'm speaking firsthand. I'm not putting words in your mouth, but it's, it's the ultimate paradox, right? right. Is that can you instill grit while giving the kids the things that you want them to have? It's right. so hard.
Right. And, and the, and the, and the challenge is that, you know, for you probably as well as me, you know, there's circumstances that you experienced as a kid or as a young adult that were hard for, you know, they were forming, forming in you as an individual, but you also don't want your kids to have to go through that same level of pain. So it's like, you know, on the one hand, you want to, you want to say to your kid, Hey, go get a job when you're 12, like I had to do, or go pay for your own clothes when you're 14, like I had to do. But at the same time, you're like, I'm working my butt off and trying to make money so that they don't have to do it. And so it's like this weird, you know, double edge sword. And I think I, you know, all, all my kids did have jobs when they were in high school in some form or fashion. Um, but I, I was probably more on the soft side than the, the hard nose side. Well, you're not alone. So I appreciate you sharing. Are you up for a quick lightning round before I let you go? Sure, let's do it. Awesome. What's the slimiest trick an acquirer tried to play on you in the process of selling your business? Uh, I honestly, I, I honestly, we did, I didn't have one. Actually, I, I didn't really have one. I mean, the conversations I had were really above board. I felt like. Awesome. Yeah. What was the biggest mistake you made personally in the process of selling? So I, uh, it's going to sound bizarre, but I think I could have gotten more money for my business. And I know everybody probably says that, but I had been doing sales for 18 years. And after the deal was done, I realized how little they pushed back on some of the negotiation points, which made me realize, oh, I could have gotten more money. But when you're in the throes of it, you don't, you don't see it. But now I was like, oh, I could have asked for a little bit more and I bet they would have taken it. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. What was the lowest point you reached during the process of selling your company? I would say, uh, I, I would say the lowest, the lowest point. So I sold the business, did 18 months of transition to get the incentive bonus got the incentive bonus, uh, was offered a, was offered a job after that 18 months. And the job offer was flat out insulting. And so the six months leading the last six months of working for them and then the job offer and then not having a job and not having a business made me feel like man, maybe I'm not a good business guy, or maybe I didn't really know what I was doing, or maybe I don't really have the skills. And so it was like six months, the, the six months post-sale where you're living in no man's desert land, where all the voices in your head start to pop up. And then you start to question who are you and what is your identity and what's the most valuable and that for me, that was the lowest. It wasn't going through the sale. It wasn't the negotiation. Even working for somebody else for a year wasn't wasn't terrible. It was the post. Yeah. What was the highest point you reached emotionally? Um, the highest the highest point for me was, and it's going to sound so weird, but the highest point for me was when I announced to the team that I had sold the business I had of the 45 ish employees at that point in time, I had probably seven, eight of them come up to me and just tell me 
how appreciative they were for the business, how appreciative they were for my wife and I and all the stuff that we did for them and their families, you know, the te- the emotion, the tears, like that was, that was the highlight. Should have been the, it should have been the, it should have been the dollars when it hit the bank account, but it was actually, it, my wife was right. It was actually the, the impact on people. That was for me, that was a highlight. That's awesome. That's awesome. Was there a, a book, a uh, any sort of resource you could point our listeners to that helped educate you about the process of selling your company? It sounds like Rich was a super helpful guide along the way and patient. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> but so, was there anything else that you used? So there were there are two other. I mean, there were two other things that were really helpful for me. One was we t- we talked about a peer group. So I was in Vistage. I know there's you know there's a ton of them out there. EO. YPO, whatever. Pick your peer group. If you're not in one, I would I would get in one. Not that I'm getting royalties from any of them, but I would get in a peer group because um, that was super helpful because it just gives you 15 other voices that you can bounce things off of. And then the second is that I I hired probably the best M and A attorney I could find in Colorado to help me through the transaction. And his name is Carlos. Carlos, uh, however however much I ended up paying Carlos and his firm was way worth it. You know, you have, you have, the, you have the investment bankers like Rich Titan Partners where, you know, they're going to say that they're really on your side to help you sell the business. But they're going to get a commission check when all is said and done. So they're sort of on your side. But having, for me, having Carlos as an independent M&A attorney that had done a ton of M&A deals, be able to say to me, hey, Kelby, I think you can push back on this. Or, hey, Kelby, I think you should take that. And his voice was generally different from Rich's. That was amazing. So I yeah, would get a really good cool. M&A attorney. Great advice for sure. Excellent. Tell me, last question. Tell me you bought yourself a trophy to commemorate the win. Well, I bought two. Lay it on me. So my my wife and I both grew up in Southwest Michigan, Kalamazoo. We've always spent time on Lake Michigan, individually yeah. and together. And my wife's dream has been to have a lake house in Holland, Michigan, on a lake called Lake Makatawa. So earlier this year, we... 20, we're going to be 25 years of marriage in December. So earlier this year, I, we bought a lake house. So congratulations. That's, that's awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. It's awesome. We spent the summer there, which was fantastic. And then I'm, I'm a little bit of a car junkie. Um, growing up in Michigan, you have to be a car junkie. Absolutely. So I uh, bought myself a Porsche Cayenne Turbo which doesn't sound very sexy, but when you live in Colorado and your second passion is skiing, the fastest all-wheel drive SUV that you can afford, you should buy. That's awesome. (laughs) Great. And every time you drive up to the mountains for a day of skiing, you can remind yourself of the wind. So I love it. Exactly. uh, Well, I just, I'm so grateful for you sharing this story. It's, it's incredible. You know, I'm just reflecting on the, the, uh, the, the journey the deal took over the years and it really, uh, it, it, it's amazing. 
especially given that that uh, it started out with the idea that you quote can't sell a training company. So clearly. <laughs> You proved them wrong. Kelby, I know people are going to want to get in touch with you and say hi. Um, uh, do you do you accept sort of LinkedIn connections or are you a Twitter guy? Like what's the best way for folks to reach out if they wanted to say hi on social yeah, media? Yeah, LinkedIn is, LinkedIn, is, LinkedIn is my preferred social media okay. channel. Great, great. And we'll put your profile in the show notes at builttosell.com. And and I understand you're doing a little bit of investing now. Maybe just give us a second on, on that. What, yeah, so kind of yeah, so I'm doing a little bit of investing and advising on the kind of the ed tech startup world. Really, the, really my focus is to help people who have been bootstrapped and now need some capital to get to the next level. That's where I'm spending my right. time. Trying to, trying, to, awesome. trying to invest dollars and time to make sure that they're successful. Great. And so best way to reach out on that Just front is hit me LinkedIn. On, hit me on LinkedIn. Yep. Great. And we'll put that in the show notes at builttosell.com. Kelby, thanks for doing this. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. And there you have it for today's episode with John and Kelby. If you enjoyed today's podcast, then be sure you hit that subscribe button. If you love today's episode and want to help support the show, you can do so by heading over to Apple Podcasts, where there you have the chance to not only leave a rating, but also a review. And I will share how to do that in the show notes section of this podcast. For the show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's episode, along with definitions for some of those more technical terms referenced, go ahead and visit the episode page, which can be found over at builttosell.com. If you know someone who would be a great fit to be a guest right here on the podcast, you can actually nominate them by heading over to builttosell.com slash nominate. There you'll have the chance to nominate either yourself or someone else to be a guest right here on the show with John. Special thanks to Dennis Labataglia for handling the audio engineering. And thank you to our community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisor community are experts in helping you build the value of your company. To get in touch with an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, head over to valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan. Talk to you again next week.